and welcome to the program, UFO Warning. Today's topic, the Murray Island Incident and Cover-Up. Now, this involves a Murray Island Incident from 1947. And before we get into what uh, one filmmaker has described as a cover-up, I'd like to take just a look back at that. And we've talked about this before on earlier podcasts, but it's definitely a very interesting uh, early UFO encounter that happened Back in 1947. And this article comes from MUFON.com. And the title says simply, Murray Island Incident 1947. It says the 1947 incident is one of the lesser known Washington State UFO occurrences, but it should be better known for several reasons. It's probably the first incident where a witness claimed that a man in black intimidated him into silence, and it took place before the famed Roswell crash. Yet, there were many similarities between the two. Moreover, the two military intelligence officers investigating the sighting died in a tragic air crash before they could complete their investigation. Unfortunately, the two principal witnesses, Harold Dahl and Fred Chrisman, became objects of suspicion and controversy as the investigation continued. So this is obviously from a very long time ago, um, you know, over 70 years and put that in context that this happened before Roswell happened. This is clear back in 1947. Now it says, in 1947, a common hazard in the waters of Puget Sound were the logs that floated on its surface. They escaped from jams waiting to be turned into lumber at nearby mills on the shore. Of course, this is clear up in Washington State, Puget Sound, Washington State, where there was a intensive logging industry at the time going on there. It says, several men worked as informal as informal harbor patrol, snagging these logs and taking them to the mills for a salvage fee. Harold Dahl worked on one of these boats, and his supervisor on shore was Fred Chrisman. Dahl reported that on June 21st, he was on his patrol boat with two men, his son and their dog. Around two in the afternoon, Dahl's boat approached the east shore of Maury Island. Maury Island is now attached to Fashion Island by Causeway Road and is about six miles west of Des Moines, Washington. Dow looked in the sky and saw six objects floating about 2,000 feet above his ship. The objects were made of some reflective material, donut-shaped, and about 100 feet in diameter. I think that's a pretty good size, 100 foot. This is 1947. I mean, this is going to be bigger than any... You know, the average planes that you see flying around, he sees six of these things hovering there, 2,000 feet up. That's not that high, really, you know, less than half a mile up. And they're 100 foot across, donut-shaped. He says, Dahl said he also saw, he said he also saw round portholes and what he thought was an observation window. Five of the craft <clears throat> circled over a sixth which dropped slowly. It stopped and hovered about 500 feet above the water. This is one of these situations where we have a fleet of UFOs that seem to be trying to come to the aid of or interact with another UFO. So you have five of these things at about 2,000 feet flying. He says he describes what he calls donut holes or portals along the sides of these craft. And they're quite large actually, 100 feet across. As one of the craft, one of the six craft, drops down to about 500 foot off the water, Dahl put to shore because he was afraid 
the center aircraft was going to crash into his boat. Once ashore, Dahl took several pictures with his camera. The lower ship stayed in position for about five minutes, with the others still circling above. One of the ships left the formation and moved down, touching the lower ships. The two kept contact for several minutes until Dahl said he heard a thud. Suddenly, thousands of pieces of what he thought were newspapers dropped from the inside of the center ship. So here we have this ship, which is apparently in distress, is trying to react somehow with the rest of the fleet. And suddenly he sees what he thinks look like newspapers dropped from this thing. Well, this had to be really um, frightening to see this. He says, Most of the debris landed on the bay, though some hit the beach. Dahl recovered a few pieces, finding it was a wa- <clears throat> finding it was a white, lightweight metal. Along with the white metal, the ship dropped about 20 tons of dark metal, which he said looked like lava rock. When the lava rock hit the water, it was so hot that steam erupted. They took cover and several pieces landed on his boat. Some debris hit his son on the arm, burning him, and another piece killed his dog. So we have a serious situation here. We have a we have a hundred foot a hundred foot wide UFO that's distressed that seems like it's about to crash out of the sky that's ejecting uh, material. You know we've talked about this UFO ejected before. It sometimes it comes out as it, oftentimes it it it's, it ejects as some form of metal, uh, some form of foam maybe. This stuff here though he describes as lava rock. And it's dangerous enough that he kills his, that it kills his poor dog. He says, "Picture FBI case file. After the rain of metal, the craft rose into the air and headed west out to sea together. Dahmer went to his boat and tried to radio for help, but it did not work. They sailed back toward their dock, dropping the dog over the side as a burial at sea." Dahl took his son to the hospital for treatment and then told his boss, Fred Christman, what had happened. Well, the only thing I can say about this is it would have been it would have been better, I think, if they would have just kept the poor dog on board so that it could have been examined. But in a situation like this, you could see where somebody might have been just stressed out enough that they wanted to get out of there and maybe just the sight of having that having that dead dog on board the ship with them was was more than they could bear. He says, Dahl and Crispin sent a package. Excuse. Dahl told investigators the next morning, a man wearing a black suit visited him and suggested they go to breakfast together. Dahl drove down his car, drove, drove his own car, following the stranger's new black Buick to a restaurant. While they ate, the stranger asked no questions. Instead, he gave a detailed account of what happened to Dahl the day before. The man in black warned Dahl that bad things would happen to Dahl and his family if he told anyone about the incident. Wow, that's really strange. Dahl and Coleman sent a package to publisher to publisher Ray Palmer in Chicago. A year or two later, Palmer founded Fate Magazine. The package contained a box of metal fragments and statements about the strange happenings on the 21st and 22nd of July. 
A few weeks later, Palmer, Palmer contacted Kenneth Arnold, who had been investigating UFOs. Arnold arrived in Tacoma in late July with airline pilot E.J. Smith. The two of them met with Donald and Chrisman, examined Donald's boat, and conducted interviews. Dolman and Chrisman did not produce the pictures, however. Dahl also told Arnold that his son had disappeared. Dahl said later that his son was found waiting tables in Montana, but he could not remember how he got there. On the afternoon of July 31st, Captain Lee Davison and First Lieutenant Frank Brown of the U.S. Army Air Force Base flew up to Tacoma from Hamilton Field, California. Well, you can see this story has some really strange turns and twists in it. Now, his son disappeared, but then turns up later waiting tables in Montana. Man, you got to wonder, uh, was the kid just stressed out by the whole situation? Or you know, was there an abduction involved? It says he couldn't remember how he got there. And the thing is, this is 1947. We don't have the internet. We don't have cheap long-distance phone calls even. I mean, even television is in a primitive state. So these guys are trying to communicate back and forth with people that can help them decipher what's going on here. And, you know, what, what takes seconds to do today, it took weeks back then. So I think we have to give them a little bit of leeway on the, on the chain of events and, what, and how the evidence was handled. Because honestly, the article says, In addition to being pilots, the two men were intelligence specialists. These are, the, these are the military folks. They met with Arnold Smith and Crispin for several hours. One of the officials said he thought there might have been something to the story, but they had to leave around midnight. They were in a hurry to be at Hamilton Field on August 1st, the day when the Air Force was to split from the Army. The two officers flew out of McCord Air <coughs> Airfield around, the, around 2 o'clock in the morning on, B-25, <coughs> on a B-25 bomber, with a crew of two other men. About 20 minutes later, the airplane crashed near Centralia, Washington. The two enlisted men managed to parachute to safety, but Davison and Brown were killed, making them the Air Force's, making them the Air Force's first casualties. Now, man, that is super strange. It says the two, men, the two enlisted men managed to escape with parachutes. Wow, you got to wonder why they didn't have more chutes on board. That is that is very strange. The Air Force investigators determined that the crash had been a terrible accident. One of the engines caught fire, and the <clears throat> and the men caught fire, and the men began bailing out. Before Brown and Davis could jump out, a wing broke and struck the trail the tail section, which also broke off. The plane went into a spin, trapping the men inside. Another Air Force investigator spoke. Another another Air Force investigator spoke with Dahl and Chrisman, and visited their boat. He stated the damage he saw did not match the damage that the two sailors described. There were no piles of metal on Maury Island, and the existing samples looked like slag from a metal smelter. His conclusion matched that the FBI matched that of the FBI investigator, that Dahl and Crimson had faked the incident to gain publicity for a magazine article. The FBI warned Dahl and Crimson that their hoax had not, <clears throat> had not succeeded and that if they dropped the matter, the government would not prosecute the two men for fraud, which had resulted in the deaths of the two officers. Well, that's a nice thought. 
So you, you report a UFO and somebody gets killed in a plane crash later and all of a sudden you're charged with murder. Wow. At first, Dole and Chrisman went along. How can you blame them? They made statements that, that the story was a fake and simply refused to give interviews on the matter. But a few years later, in January 1950 issue of Fate magazine, Crossman stated that the incident had happened and Kenneth Arnold included Murray Island in his 1952 book, The Coming of the Saucers. Today, most people believe that Chrisman Dahl faked the incident, perpetuating a hoax that got out of control. Other people believe that the U.S. government was behind a conspiracy that may have involved anything from UFOs to dumping nuclear waste in Puget Sound. They believe a shadow government agency sabotaged the B-25 bomber in order to eliminate the investigation and blame Dahl and Crisman. Some investigators recently visited the crash site, hoping to find some of the strange rocks to prove things one way or another, but so far no answers have been found. It says this story is from the website Weird US. Read the original at weirdus.com. Well, that's strange indeed. The only thing that I would say that might make this seem like it could possibly be a hoax was the fact that um, they the, uh, was it Redmond claims that he had a uh, camera with him that day, and I wonder how likely it would be to carry a camera with you in a boat when you're out trying to uh, round up logs. You know, it just seems a little strange that he would have. And then the pictures, um, you have to ask where where's the photographic evidence at. But at the same time, you know, they did have the, the UFO ejecta. Some of that was apparently sent off this other magazine, and that leaves a little bit of a question as to what happened here. But if you're going to make up a, if you were going to make up a hoax, it seems like they went into a lot of extra detail that they wouldn't have needed to go into uh, to make it seem believable. Now, beyond that, I found this other article here on RecordOnline.com where this fellow's a filmmaker, and he goes into this a little bit, He's, and the title is Filmmaker Documents UFO Cover-Ups. And this is one of the ones he covered. And it says, uh, the UFOs seemed like they were everywhere in the summer of 1947. Roswell Army Air Force captures flying saucer on ranch, blared a front-page headline of the Roswell New Mexico Daily Record newspaper in June. The same month, two men who said they were on harbor patrol in Puget Sound in Washington State, claimed they not only saw six donut-shaped objects in the sky, they said fragments of them landed on their boat. In July, a private pilot also in Washington reported seeing nine saucer-shaped UFOs as he flew past Mount Rainier. It was against this backdrop that two Army Corps officers, Captain William Davison and Lieutenant Frank Brown, were sent to Washington to investigate and reports say collect the so-called UFO fragments. They never made it back to their California base. Their B-25 bomber crashed, killing the officers. Was it engine failure, as reports claimed, or was it something else like sabotage? Montgomery's Michael Creer, a filmmaker, playwright, playwright retired New York City police officer and part-time uh, SUNY Orange security guard, doesn't buy the official explanation of engine failure. Not only does he say that engines were unlikely to fail because they'd just been installed, the ID numbers on the photo of the crashed plane were different than the numbers on the official reports of the crash. 
That incident is just one aspect of what Courier 72 claims could be one of the biggest cover-ups in UFO history, a major cover-up that he says reached all the way to President Harry Truman. Courier was even asked, Courier has even asked the United Nations Human Rights Commission to investigate the crash, along with writing President Truman, President Trump about it. There was so much evidence, Courier says, but all the reports from the local police departments disappeared. All of this is at the center of Courier's film, Alien Connection, The Final Proof, The Final X-File, which was scheduled to be shown in New York Wednesday night as part of the New York Filmmakers New York Festival. But because of the coronavirus, will now be shown online Wednesday, 6 p.m. at newfilmmakers.com. Hope to tune into that if we can find it. Once again, that is newfilmmakers.com. Newfilmmakers.com. It says it'll be shown Wednesday at 6 o'clock. That incident involving the crashed B 25 isn't the only UFO cover up Corey explores in the 44 minute Alien Connection, which features four actors who recreated many of the events that are subject of the film. A few months after the War Department in Washington, D.C. said the crashed UFO in Roswell was a, actually a high-altitude weather balloon, later said to be part of a mission to detect Russian nuclear weapons, Coyer says Truman made an unscheduled and never-publicized visit to a military base in Ohio where the alien bodies from the Roswell UFO were allegedly kept, even though official records say that Truman never visited the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Coyier says he has an email shown in Alien Connection from the base that says, Our records show President Truman visited Wright Field Field sometime in September 1947. But before you think that Coyier himself is out of this world, you should know that that he's not one of those alien implanted in his body type of guys. In fact, he's also written a play, and then it goes on and talks a little bit more about his bio. Um, Overall, an interesting article. The, the thing, the, the UFO case from Puget Sound, Washington, has always been what I thought was a very strange case. I mean, you had all this ejecta come out of the UFO, report, allegedly, and you did have the first initial investigation about it. But then you had this contradicting investigation between the, between the FBI and then the later military guys that came in and said, you know, well, the slag that you found came from this metal refinery down the road, which seems a little strange, too. It's a really kind of a convoluted case, but it's still it's still one of those cases that's fascinating because um, you have the eyewitness reports that were right there when it happened. And when you stop and look at this case from Washington, you see what we've seen happen repeatedly, actually, over the years in these cases, where you have... Somebody sees a fleet of UFOs, and they seem to be trying to help another um, distressed or disabled craft. And a lot of times, it seems like these things do. Uh, it's like it's like they're almost leaking something. And this is not an uncommon thing in that situation. This for somebody to say, "Well, that this craft seemed like it was distressed, and then uh, it exploded out, you know, ejecta or gas or whatever." So the story itself makes sense. There are a couple things that go along with the story that don't make sense. Like I said, number one, why did he happen to have a camera in his boat? 
And number two, why did you throw the dog over the side of the boat and not just bring it in with you? You know, so it's like a lot of these cases you have to, without physical evidence, you have to weigh the eyewitness account to uh, whether or not it's even, you know, it's rational. And, you know, that said, while we still try to give them the benefit of the doubt, it seemed like it was important enough to get investigated, though, a couple of times by the FBI and by uh, military investigators. So that makes you really think that maybe when they sent this uh, material off to the fellow in Chicago, whatever, you know, maybe that material ended up in a uh, army base somewhere, and that's why they were interested to come out and talk to these guys. You know, lots of people saw UFOs, lots of people reported sightings. But not all of them got interviewed by uh, military investigators. And another thing that kind of piques my interest is in this, you know, we've there's been a lot of talk about what uh, Tom DeLonge and To the Academy of Stars has in their possession. And for some time it's been speculated, alleged that they have actual UFO ejecta in their possession. And it would be really cool if they had this stuff, if they would share it with us and let us know what it's made out of. But... Overall, it's a interesting case. I haven't seen the movie yet, but uh, this fellow speculating a government cover-up of uh, UFO encounters and UFO sightings, and yeah, that doesn't surprise me. That's kind of the premise that I operate under already because knowledge is valuable, and I don't see the deep state really uh, predisposed to share anything valuable with us unless they're getting more out of it than they put into it. Until next time, this is UFO Warning, over and out.